Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello and welcome back for episode two of our series, Nurse Practitioner Regulations and Practice Issues, Pandemic to Future Considerations. Let's jump back into the conversation. So before we were talking about some limitations on nurse practitioner practice, during the pandemic, changes occurred, which paved the way for states to choose to allow for an expanded scope of practice, like during the timeframes of the pandemic and states of emergency. Um, There were decreased regulatory restrictions in those states without full practice authority. That's FPA, right? Right. How did some of this work out and impact nurse practitioner practice? Right. So as we know, the end of 2019 brought a new global health care crisis and NPs were called upon to care for the nation's COVID-19 stricken patients, communities and, and health care systems. In some states, COPA practice restriction was limiting the APRN's full contribution as providers, primarily the requirements for physician oversight, which was exacerbating the issue of access to competent healthcare providers. So on March 24, 2020, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar urged the states to lift their practice barriers on APRNs so that they can increase access to care. So as a result, restricted and reduced practice states moved in some fashion or another towards suspending the restrictive practice laws, which ultimately expanded the nurse practitioner or APRN's scope of practice. So for example, in the states that remained without FPA or full practice authority, 13 states temporarily waived select practice agreements and five suspended all practice agreement requirements. West Virginia, for example, suspended the co-signature requirement on refilled prescriptions by nurse practitioners for meds Mm. that were initially prescribed by the physician, just to name a few. Sounds like NP practice was and is regulated by the state level related to state boards of nursing and state law. You said something about that earlier, and this is bringing it back to that state level. Yes. Yeah, you're correct. So NP scope of practice laws are generally established by the the state boards of nursing, and that's in one or three ways. They endorse a nationally vetted standards of practice statement established by a national organization that represents NPs. They craft state-specific standard of practice statements based on stakeholder input, or they use a combination of national statements with state-specific guidelines uh, added to further clarify or provide clarity or restriction. So which in this case, it appears many states choose the latter, gathering input from both national and state stakeholders to determine and clarify the new scope of practice laws for their states. That makes sense. We talked about the full practice authority. Please tell us more, remind us more about full practice authority for nurse practitioners. Okay. So remember, it is the practice model recommended by the National Academy of Medicine, formerly called the Institute of Medicine, and the National Council of State Boards of Nursing. It requires that state practice and licensure laws to permit all NPs to evaluate patients, diagnose, order, and interpret diagnostic tests 
and initiate and manage treatments, including prescribing medications and controlled substances. Remember, under the exclusive licensure authority of the State Board of Nursing. Hmm. Okay, so this seems to be like something that there's a lot of opinions about, particularly in the medical community. There have been different opinions for and against expanding nurse practitioner practice. So where do we kind of stand today? So as of July of this year, 2022, there are 26 states or territories to include the District of Columbia whose MPs have been granted with full practice authority. You know, Maria, there will always be differences. However, (laughs) I, I will say the scientific community, as a scientific community, These opinions do not outweigh the decades of evidence-based research that has demonstrated that MPs provide safe and effective care. They positively impact Uh, health outcomes, increase access to care, and whose services are utilized by every major national health care system across the nation. Good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in addition... Opinions can't shrug off the reality that in the next 10 years, the United States will have 122,000 fewer physicians that are required to care for the patient population. That's a large number. Yeah, it is. And so when practice authority is restricted in states, it severely limits the number of available providers. Let me give you an example. We talked about this, limiting the distance that NPs can provide care or that NPs can practice prevents patients actually who live far from the physician's office to be cared for. As a result, I will say Kaiser Family Foundation reported that over 80% of all Americans uh, who face primary care shortage, roughly 63 million individuals live in states that restrict access to NPs. That's pretty, that's pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And in in addition, states that enact full practice authority have demonstrated decreased hospital use. It's reduced emergency room visits, increased the availability of healthcare provider follow-ups, and expanded access to rural and underserved communities. There was a 2019 executive summary by the Americans for Prosperity report, and, and it stated that in states that implement full practice authority, They spend 17% less per capita on uh, outpatient care, 11% less on prescription drugs, and 15% less on pediatric preventative care compared to states that restrict access to nurse practitioners. So that's significant economically as well. No, that's great. I mean, we're always talking about cost-effective health care and how to provide, you know, better care for more people. There's evidence right there. Right. Right, exactly. So let's say in the past few years or in this time of the pandemic, do you think medical support particularly for nurse practitioners has changed? Yes, yes, absolutely. There are many professional communities and providers that support the APRN role and the value that's added by their practice. This includes physicians whose scientific underpinnings are founded in the medical model. So a prime example of how support has changed in the federal government was in 2016 under the undersecretary of David Shulkin. They granted advanced practice registered nurses, including NPs, full practice authority to deliver care to veterans without the supervision of a physician. After lengthy review and controversy of veterans who were not being properly cared for, 
It was determined that the VA had the capacity to provide timely, efficient, effective, and safe primary care via making the most efficient use of APRN staff capabilities and how it provides a degree of much needed experience to alleviate the current access challenges that are affecting the VA. They were able to, to really mobilize and increase their use of advanced practice nurses. Okay, well, while we're discussing this, sometimes there can be a question that comes up from those unfamiliar with the differences between, let's say, nursing and medical models of care, and the differences between the four major professional designations. So we have the nurse practitioner, which of course is a specific type of advanced practice registered nurse, the physician assistant, and the nurse, and then of course we have the physicians. So we have different roles. While many listeners from a nursing background may already know these differences and be extremely familiar, maybe you can provide some concise explanations that healthcare professionals in general can use to explain the differences to patients, clients, or even the public to help avoid some of the stigmatizing or the misinterpreted language that some in the public realm use. I still hear things like, what's a nurse practitioner right. or, you know, the nurse practitioner. Oh, is that the PA? Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> you know how it goes. Yes. Yes. That's a million dollar question, Maria, for sure. <laughs> or, and, you know, and explaining those differences between those that, that aren't healthcare providers can be quite confusing. I totally get it. And, and there's so many different types, but in speaking to your question in regards to the misinterpretations, I gather you were talking about the controversy or misperception that, APRNs, and specifically speaking, I guess the nurse practitioners are trying to practice as physicians. And, and that is not at all the case. APRNs practice advanced practice nursing. Remember that. They do not intend or desire to practice as a physician as they weren't trained under the medical model to be physicians. And although the healthcare arena in which APRNs practice is often referred to as the world of medicine, uh, that does not mean it is exclusive to physicians or those trained under the medical curriculum model. Well said. Yeah. I'd say, furthermore, like personally speaking, when I am asked, so what's the difference between you or a PA or you and a doctor? I note that while, yes, there is overlap in many of the services that we provide, there are distinct differences in our educational foundations, training requirements, yeah. the practice approaches, and pathways that we provide care. My own being founded in scientific and theoretical underpinning of nursing, or what people call the nursing model. And physicians and PAs are trained under the medical curriculum model. I am always clear to explain my scope of practice, expertise, training, and licensure capabilities. I like the way you said that. Yeah, that was very good. Unless you're very familiar or you've been to nursing school or medical school, yes, yeah, I think the lay public in general doesn't always understand there, there's two different disciplines here, but we work together to provide the best care. Absolutely. Okay, so going back to these states of emergency, what does it look like now that states of emergency are being allowed to expire or many states have already let their states of emergency expire? For states that allowed a significant change in nurse practitioner practice during the pandemic, is it as simple as like here today, gone tomorrow? <laughs> like, you know, oh yeah, we changed everything and now we're going back to the way it was. Yeah, yeah. To much surprise, it is as simple as that, to many's dismay. 
I'll tell you, Gail Alcock, she's a family nurse practitioner and a, an American Association Nurse Practitioner Fellow, is a fourth-term North Carolina House of Representatives who recently reported that in almost three decades since New Mexico passed the nation's first independent practice bill, which meant that they launched the state-by-state pursuit of unrestricted nurse practitioner practice, only certain kinds of crisis, such as unremitting provider shortages or widening health disparities and escalating numbers of uh, underserved have provided enough of a compelling backdrop to give FPA or full practice authority momentum. When she spoke about her own state, though similar in many other restricted states, she noted that, and I quote, political context, a political form of pre-existing conditions was too powerful for even a pandemic to overcome. Ah. Yeah, yeah. In March of 2020, the North Carolina legislator passed a 70-page corona bill that included some waivers and two of their most cumbersome senseless MP regulations, but it has since been in legislated and, and not yet passed. So mm-hmm. she was speaking to how frustrating that was. So, so far, three states, Delaware, Kansas, and New York, have achieved full practice authority uh, during the pandemic, but not because of it. So that's where we are today. Okay, let's jump over to talking about the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. What impact did this act have for APRNs or NPs specifically? Yes. So the CARES Act was legislation implemented by the federal government under the previous presidential administration to provide the nation with uh, additional funding and, and vital resources that was needed during the pandemic. So, for example, it provided funding for personal protective equipment, what we call PPE. It allowed NPs to provide care across the nation without new licensure. It permitted interstate telehealth care to be provided and reimbursed and increased seniors' access to care by authorizing NPs to certify and recertify home health care services for Medicare patients. In many ways, uh, APRNs were extremely impacted by the CARES Act, as their scope of practice actually was expanded through these emergency regulatory and policy changes. But more importantly, the health of our country was significantly impacted, as these advanced practice providers were actually able to strengthen the nation's response to the pandemic by working to a fuller extent of their education and training. Okay. And you are based in the state of Virginia. I am. Are there any scenarios or regulations related to Virginia that you could share with us just to help us get, you know, a real life example kind of picture of how nurse practitioner practice changes or evolves based on current events or changing laws? You used that word evolves earlier. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So uh, one example would be that Virginia is a state that requires five years of full-time practice or 9,000 hours until NPs are allowed to practice without a collaborative physician agreement. At the beginning of 2020 pandemic, this was changed to be a two-year requirement until NPs could apply for autonomous practice licensure. Like North Carolina, When there was a light at the end of the tunnel, the pandemic tunnel, opposition from organized Mm -hmm. medicine used their lobbying weight during the 2022 legislative session to persuade state legislators to reject a sunset clause provision that was proposed, which would have allowed permanent statute of the two-year requirement. 
As of July 2022, it reverted back, sadly, to five years. Coincidentally, though, those who did obtain their autonomous licensure during the pandemic were not required to surrender it. Just no one else Hmm. between the practice years of two and five could apply for it. So we currently have a wide range of NPs in Virginia with more or less than five years experience without any evidence of downside detriment. So the data moving forward should should look good. Yes. Okay. And then what about some other states? Did they respond in a different manner related to the emergency authorizations for this independent practice? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, to date, there are zero states that ultimately granted full practice authority as a result of the pandemic emergency authorizations. However, there is much more data coming down the line to support its potential. For example, a recent report from Massachusetts Health Policy Commission demonstrated that the impact of NPs had on lowering healthcare costs and servicing individuals in underserved areas of the state. During the pandemic, restrictions of that state, the scope of practice, were temporarily removed which allowed the commission to realize that if NPs can practice independently during a pandemic, then they certainly are competent to practice independently Mm -hmm. after or in other times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a result, there are calls for the reassessment of NP scope of practice to allow for full authority within this state and nationwide. Excellent. Let's talk about the geographic location stuff and the APRN consensus model, and then also the APRN compact. That's very interesting. You know, the RN compact, that's pretty huge, right. but it seems like the APRN compact isn't quite as huge yet. So many nurses are familiar with the nurse licensure compact for non-APRNs, and most states have entered the practical slash registered nurse compact program since around 2018. Uh, Can you tell us about the APRN consensus and compact and some of the factors that have delayed its adoption? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's not that it's not popular to those within nursing. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Right, as it would be quite beneficial to both patient and nurses, but rather it's controversial among those outside of nursing and more in the political world. Remember, the consensus model provides guidance for states to adopt uniformity in the regulation of the APRN roles in their licensure, their accreditation, certification, and education. So although there has been significant progress in the implementation of those components of the consensus model, there are many jurisdictions and states that have not adopted all of the elements of the APRN regulation. You know, it makes sense to ensure that all licensed APRNs were were held to the same regulatory standards, right? Yes, it would make sense. However, that would mean that participating states would lose a good amount of regulatory control over NP professional practice. And that doesn't sit well with organized medicine or bureaucrats who report their necessary oversight as a way to protect the public or prevent nursing's expanded scope of practice. Okay. Okay. Do you think if more states get on board with the APR and compact that that would help encourage this further advancement or uh, allowing APR and practice to advance more independently or or not, not really? Do you think it's connected or not so much? Well, it certainly would, would make it a lot easier for MPs who desire to practice more than one state and increase the amount of available healthcare providers across the nation. The APRN compact was adopted in, in 2020. 
and mm-hmm. it allows advanced practice registered nurses to hold more than or hold, hold one multi-state license uh, with a privilege to practice in other compact states. There are specific requirements, though, for eligibility, such as the most recently and controversial addition of the 2080 practice hours to be eligible. Oh, yeah, there, there it is. is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, this recent addendum to the compact, it was actually opposed by the AANP. However, the National uh, Council of State Boards of Nursing uh, defended its position, saying that it was due to the political climate of the 20 restricted practice states, and it was more of a compromise that would gain traction and help it be more successful for the compact to become enacted. And once the APRN compact is enacted, it would require actually seven states to have adopted the legislation. So you talked about the AANP and then the National Council of State Boards of Nursing. I was surprised to find there are a lot of organizations that have issued statements of some sort Mm -hmm saying, you know, that they'd rather not have to deal with that extra requirement of 2080 hours. So I think the idea behind that is they're saying if an NP graduates and completes all of their requirements to, you know, be awarded the credential, they should be able to start practicing. In other words, don't add on more requirements afterwards. So is that the gist of the differences in opinion? That is the gist. Exactly. Okay. It is exactly the gist. And I think the NCSBN, or, or it's not I think, okay. what they've documented and reported is that there was several reasons why these changes were necessary. And they weren't stating necessarily that they aren't competent, but more so it was a compromise okay. due ah. to the political environment of these restrictive states. And they needed to move along the the likelihood that the compact would be enacted and quicker. And, and, and some of these reasons were due to the COVID-19 because it increased the demand for telehealth and education. It demonstrated an urgent need for this compact to happen. And without the 2080 hours, uh, in 2020, that is, uh, only 14 states would have ever been eligible to join the compact because they had already had independent practice and prescriptive authority for all the four roles, the APRN roles, and just needed like minor modifications. And I thought what was most interesting of what NCSBN said is, despite this requirement, an estimated 92% of all APRNs would be eligible to apply for multi-state license from day one Hmm. of the implementation of the compact. So looking at overall, it, it seemed to be beneficial for the majority. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we know there's geographic inequities in terms of APRNs and specifically NPs. So we talk about a nursing shortage, but then it's like, well, there's not a nursing shortage in like every area of the country. So along those lines, do you know if there are certain areas with fewer practicing nurse practitioners or certain areas that are really pro expanding nurse practitioner practice? Right. Yeah. So like you said, we know population of the practice of NPs has grown exponentially. However, in building its workforce, we remain kind of stymied by the lack of educational funding, limiting clinical trading sites, and barrier legislation, as we've talked about. As we established in our previous discussion, there is evidence that NPs are more likely to provide care in areas where they are needed 
the most, such as geographically rural areas where their scope of practice is not diminished by, you know, unnecessary regulatory barriers, such as collaborative agreements, requiring them to pay to play, I should say, and or the distance from oversight physicians' offices. Economically speaking, without such barriers, there are greater advantages and increased opportunities to become entrepreneurs and as a result, positively impact state and federal revenue in, in addition to unemployment rates. So, so there is a, a positive impact for having a decreased regulations. As far as an example to provide you, let's okay. use the example of the regulation that only MDs are allowed to provide collaborative agreements and oversight to NPs until they are eligible at five years for autonomous practice. In Virginia, for example, the Appalachian region is one of the well-known beauty of hardworking communities, small, and it is also a community at the heart of the opioid epidemic. With minimal access they have to healthcare and where uh, poor health and low income is prevalent. Remember, this is the same area that was highlighted in the recent movie Dope Sick. So if you can relate to, to this is the area, all right? So in this community resides the Everhart Primary Care Clinic. It was established by a mother and daughter nurse practitioner team. They have, or had rather, the mother has passed, since passed, but a combined experience of over 30 years, okay? Uh, this clinic has provided many of preceptorships to nurse practitioner students, and it actually has resulted in many of the nurse practitioners wanting to stay and work there after they board certify. However, with the limited yeah. access of area physicians or the money oh. that's required to pay a physician for a collaborative agreement, mm-hmm. it remains a difficult staff and therefore by default oh. limits its potential outreach in a needed area. Alternatively, if the well-experienced NPs working there were allowed to provide this collaboration to their newly employed NPs, It would increase access to services, impact overall health outcomes, and decrease the health provider shortage. All right. That's a very real Mm -hmm. situation that gets to the heart of the matter right there. There are solutions. And and we have the environment to allow (laughs) the solution to come forth. Wow. Okay. We have more to discuss, so we'll head into episode three. This is Maria Morales for Colibri Healthcare with Dr. Alicia Peck. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.